You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Interesting. So what would you uh, write your book about? We talk about this a lot, that so much of the history we tell in schools focuses on like generals and wars and big social movements, which some of that is really important to society. But I do also enjoy thinking about those everyday things. So I would really like to do like a history of maybe like how comedy has changed. Like what do people find funny? Like I'm very uh-huh. curious. I'll, when I read older books, sometimes some things like really translate well. And other things don't. I don't know. Or I could just do like a history of breakfast. <laughs> That's also, or the differences, regional differences in breakfast and how they developed. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think the the pork industry is actually heavily involved in there for like having like a big, like good old fashioned American breakfast with your bacon, your egg and whatnot. I read something about that once. I often say in my classes, there's a social studies of everything, right? And once you start digging, you quickly find that, oh, these things that we find not as important, there's often censorship issues or government regulation or some or cultural components. And so you find like these deep meaning when you start searching on any topic. So today we're actually the reason we're talking about history books is we have a guest today who has written more books that I can't even like look on their Amazon page and find all the books. It's so many books. And really it's he's built a career based on kind of our failures as social studies teachers a little bit. Because when kids walk out and they don't know much about history, he made books to help them learn what they didn't know. Kevin C. Davis is going to be on the podcast? I know, right? And he's written, he's going to talk to us about being a historian and all of these books he's written and his kind of career of thinking about how these issues matter. So without further ado, let's invite him in. Kevin C. Davis, how are you doing today? Good afternoon, guys. It is a great pleasure to talk to and I can see you. I know those listeners to the podcast can't so I, but I get to see your smiling glowing faces and and appreciate this I, this conversation about the books you would write though is really intriguing to me uh, you know what, one one thing you said Dan in particular caught my ear the idea of breakfast cuz we recently were looking into orange juice and the whole thing about orange juice was really as the drink you had at breakfast was a creation of the orange juice industry. I mean, there was really a marketing campaign to create this idea that orange juice was what you should drink at breakfast. Because for a long time, obviously, people didn't drink orange juice in most of America because they didn't have access to it until well into the 20th century. So it's it's really this marketing-driven thing like so much of our lives today, but I was really interested to, to, to learn that recently. Yeah, all of these things that are part of our society, what, what people used to laugh at, what people eat, what people did for entertainment. And we have to remember that until fairly recently, most people didn't have entertainment and vacation and leisure time. It's oh a fairly goodness. modern creations in American history, but it, it's always fascinating, I think. And that's, that's what part of what I call 
hidden history when I write, when I look at uh, some aspect of our past. I like when they put the straw in the orange. <laughs> I think that was just an advertising campaign. I'm fairly certain. It probably was. And Michael, we're trying to move away from plastic straws. You got to use paper or metal ones now, right? You'd have to use a metal straw to actually cut into a orange, I think. <laughs> well, we're getting a little off, off topic here, but if we could come back to Kenneth Davis, can you tell us a little bit about your, your life in education, whether it's your, your own K-12 career to the way that you've been a teacher in your life? Well, I have to say that when I was in school, both in high school, certainly, and even into college, I had no idea, no clue that I would become a writer. I was very much a reader my entire life. I was a pretty good writer in high school, but I did not write for the high school newspaper. That came about when I was in college, and I learned I really enjoyed the kind of journalistic approach to, to writing, even though we were, it was more feature writing than pure j- journalism. But I still, throughout co- my college years, and I was the classic liberal arts major, not a, his, a historian or trained historian per se, but I was a kid who always loved history and always loved to read. And I didn't have this notion that I could be a writer. I'd never met a writer. I'd never had a writer come into school. And we saw writers, I'm talking about in the 60s and early 70s, obviously. I'm an old dude. Um, th- you would saw writers on television, but they were usually like Jacqueline Suzanne, maybe Norman Mailer and, and Truman Capote because they were really famous, Gore Vidal. Um, they were famous. Uh, kind of extraordinary writers, but just seeing a writer in person, it just didn't happen. So to me, the idea of being a writer was kind of as foreign as being or extraordinary as being a neurosurgeon or an astronaut. It just, it didn't have any connection to my life. The truth is, I always thought I would be a teacher when I was in school, well into college. I always enjoyed being in front of a classroom and talking about things and explaining things and trying to engage people in a classroom. So I, I, I probably was on a teaching track until I, you know, life takes you on some, some strange path sometimes. I took a job in a bookstore while I was halfway through college to make some money. And while I was there, I met somebody who read my work in college and they said to me, honestly, you're wasting your time selling books. You should be writing them. Uh, she was so smart. I married her. And that's a true story. And that's how my wife and I met each other. And we got involved with the, in the book world. And she really gave me the permission, in a way, to become a writer. I wrote some magazine work for a long time. And then I was casting about for a book project. And my very smart wife, again, said something life-changing to me. You love American history. Why don't you write about it? And it was around the moment that the first reports of how bad Americans were at history were coming out. What do our 17-year-olds know or not know? All the studies and closing of the American mind and cultural literacy. It was that moment when people were really talking and thinking about the failures of the school system to adequately educate people, especially when it came to history. So I, I set about to, in my own way, try and remedy that. And the way for me to approach it 
was to make history as fun, interesting, entertaining, and human as I always thought it was. And that's what I tried to do in the Don't Know Much About series and later on in the other books that I, I moved into where I tried to focus on the things that school books leave out because there's just too much really important stuff and too much really interesting stuff not not to talk about it. And I have to also say that when I wrote, I was writing for an adult audience, obviously. I did not have it in mind remotely that school teachers would pick up my books and start to use them in their classrooms, either as assigned reading or as supplementary reading. And this was a real revelation to me. Uh, you know, the book, don't know much about history, came out about 30 years ago. I'd say in the last 15 years of that time, I really become actively involved in meeting and talking to teachers. And that's only grown exponentially in the social media age where I've gotten involved with things like SS chat and talking to teachers one on one in classrooms and Skyping into classrooms. So I've fulfilled my dream to become a teacher and a writer in the same way. I know that we've talked about this before, but your don't know much about mythology. That actually got me through my student teaching. And so I was able to like really add some color and add some more uh, stories to class. So thank you. Well, that's a, a great pleasure to me to hear that. And the remarkable thing over those years that I've been talking about is how many teachers have said to me that they used my books not only with their students, but kind of it helped them get through school. I've also had even the more extraordinary experience, and it really is an honor, and I, I say this humbly, when somebody says to me, your books really got me interested in history, your books made me want to be a history teacher, that's kind of a mind-blowing thing, because look, we sit here as writers in a room, solitary, you know, we, I have all these books behind me, I'm at the New York Public Library, I go to historic sites, and historic places. It's pretty much a solitary life. We don't, we think about our readers in a theoretical way. But when you hear that your book has had an impact on somebody in that way, it's a pretty awesome thing. So I, I really appreciate hearing that. And again, it's not what I set out to do, but having, having heard it enough over the years is, is very gratifying. So obviously you've read, you've written a lot of don't know much about books. So we thought we'd do a little thing called Don't Know Much About Kevin C. Davis, where we're going to ask you questions about yourself and see how we, you know, what type of answers we get. I'm game. Oh, good. We did not warn you about this. Okay. So, okay. All right. So first question, what does the C stand for? The C stands for Charles, Kenneth Charles Davis. That is my middle name. So this isn't a Harry S. Truman situation where the S... No. Yes. Or Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. For that matter. No, yeah. they're, 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 uh, Charles was a, a family name. The mystery is solved. And they have, we've been, many people have been asking us that question. They said that was the pressing thing they wanted to know. Um, although they could have just checked your Wikipedia page. You may be our first guest with a Wikipedia page. It is not there. It's not there. It's just a It scene. is not there. It does talk <laughs> about Kenneth S. Davis. Ooh, okay. That's someone else you're going to talk about. Three of the C is solved. <laughs> mystery is finally solved. And we have two more questions. If Kenneth C. Davis was not a teacher or a writer, what would you be doing? 
That's a hard question because I've really only thought of myself professionally over the years as either of those two things. If I wasn't a teacher or I wasn't a writer, you know, I, I don't know because I had no aspiration as a young person to be something else. I, I suppose with my interests, maybe I would have become an attorney, but Knowing how miserable most attorneys are, I'm glad I didn't go in that direction. <laughs> We're glad to. I'm going to suggest that you're very fashionable, that you could open your own studious kind of, you know, fashion yes. fashion shop. Because I think you've got a good look going that more people need to take advantage of. Well, that's very, very, uh, that's very gratifying. I did not think of myself as a fashion plate growing up, certainly. <laughs> I was... I grew up in the 60s and, you know, before there was grunge, there was, you know, tie dye and bell bottoms and torn jeans. And that's what, you know, I was kind of wearing for a long time. I've really only adopted this more, I don't know, studious 19th century look in, in recent years and came about kind of just saying, yeah, I'm tired of sitting around writing in a t-shirt and jeans. I'm going to dress for work. And and this was kind of what I hit upon. So I'm very comfortable with myself in this way. And um, <laughs> then, uh, then of course, I also discovered these glasses. And They're cool. No, no, yeah. one, uh, no one can find out where I get them because I don't want anyone else to have them. And uh, they, they've <laughs> it's become... It's a Seinfeld so episode, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, it's a good look. And yeah, I think you should. It's a good historian look. So you should lean into it. Yeah, somebody recently told me like on the weekend that I looked like a professor. I was like, yeah, I'm just leaning into it. It's my job. Okay, our our last question here is, what does Kenneth C. Davis not know much about? And does that have to do at all with the books that you choose to write? That's a good question. I, honestly, I there's a lot I don't know much about. And I truly say this without you know trying to sound like I'm piling it on here but I really feel like I'm a person who wants to learn something new every day I'm an extremely curious person I was ex- extremely curious as a child and my curiosity I think has driven me I think one of the great dangers and I certainly fall into it sometimes is thinking that you know more than you do or worse thinking that you know it all and so I'm, I'm constantly on guard about that. There are a lot of things I don't know much about. I, you know, I know about finance and Wall Street and all that, and I would never want to write about it. it. I only write about the things that I'm really, truly interested in. And while I understand the importance of that, I would not want to write about it. I don't know enough about gardening. I used to have a garden in the uh, when I had a home in the country, and I was a very very struggling gardener. So I, I suppose I'd, I'd like to do uh, go back to being a gardener again. Uh, I definitely don't know much about women, and uh, <laughs> I've, I've struggled all my life with with that. Although no, I'm just ki- kidding in some respects. There, uh, my wife and I have um, been married for forty years very happily and. I just know that the most important words one can say are whatever you say goes. <laughs> As you wish. And I learned from the movie what was the name? Prince, of the, movie? Prin- the, the Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. I the learned Princess from the Princess Bride. Bride. Yeah. 
So there's two books that we'd like to maybe discuss a little bit today in particular. So first is your most recent book, which everyone should purchase these. They're available both in hardcover, I think paperback, and audiobook, and Kindle. So they're available in all formats that you could desire. Correct me if that's wrong, but the first book, the most recent one, is More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu and the First World War. And this is a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention in history books oftentimes and overlooked, but was a big deal. The Spanish flu was an enormous deal, and it's one of the most extraordinary stories in that it was left out of the history books and is a, a black hole for so many people when it comes to America's past and, and world history as well. Just briefly, the Spanish flu hit 100 years ago in 1918. It came just as the world, first world war was being fought. Of course, they didn't call it the first world war. They called it the great war at the time. And it was no coincidence that the spread of the flu came during this war. They were intricately woven together. And that's why the book, More Deadly Than War, is about how the two very different things an influenza pandemic around the globe and the First World War created each other in a way and had an impact on each other. The virus was spread by soldiers, troops moving around the world on trains, on ships, being crowded into trenches, being crowded into barracks, uh, the, the sh wartime shortages of food, medicine, the dire consequences of the war helped spread the flu. The flu had an impact on the war, early, especially in the spring of 1918. So I say to teachers who are teaching World War I, especially the last year of it and uh, with America's involvement in the World War, that you cannot teach this subject of the war and its end without teaching about the Spanish flu. But throughout most of our history, we teach history that way. We talk about what the generals did and the causes of war and the after effects and the impact of the war. And we don't always look at the human side of the story. Disease throughout history has killed far more people than wars have. Disease has often had a tremendous impact on war. You can go back to the Battle of Thermopylae, the 300, the Spartans at the Hellgate. Um, there's a good chance that the Persian army was really as impacted by dysentery as they were by the 300 Spartans. Just talking about dysentery isn't as, quite as sexy as talking about buff Greek and Spartan soldiers in there uh, <laughs> with their swords. So that's why we get that version of history. But it, it's without question that disease has killed far more many uh, more people throughout world history than, than wars have. But we leave that out of the history books for the most part until a, a few years ago, of course, guns, germs, and steel came around and changed a lot of people's thinking about how we should think and talk about history. And that book had an enormous impact on me. But this is, this story is the perfect case of how medicine, science, and people's lives intersect with the grand designs of history. And I just felt it was too important for people not to know about the most deadly epidemic in world history since the Black Plague of medieval times. 
The Spanish flu in about the space of a year killed about 100 million people worldwide. That's the high number. Some people think it's 50 million, whichever it is, 50 to 100 million. It's extraordinary. Certainly killed 675,000 Americans in the space of a year. That's an extraordinary number. It's more than all the men who died fighting in World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. It's more people or about the same number of people who have died from HIV and AIDS in 40 years. This was compressed in one year. It actually sent the life expectancy in America down in 1918. And then it was forgotten. People didn't want to write about it, talk about it, think about it, remember it. And so it was really erased from the national memory. We have this kind of amnesia about the most deadly epidemic in American history at a time when 100 years ago, people were walking around the streets of most major cities wearing masks because that was the law. And they saw signs that said spit spreads death. So it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary piece of history. And I explored it because not only did I think it was fascinating and important to understand it, but I think there are some lessons from the Spanish flu that are worth still learning today. The Spanish flu also killed, I think, two main characters from Downton Abbey. It was a plot in Downton, a subplot in a season of Downton Abbey, although, you know, I don't think that Downton Abbey, and I love Downton Abbey, conveyed the real epic international global scope of the Spanish flu. More yeah. sort of made it seem more like something that was, you know, affecting this family and, and not as incredibly widespread as it was. The King of England was sick with the Spanish flu. The fleet, the King's fleet was so sick that they couldn't put to sea in May of 1918 during the worst, some of the worst months of fighting in the war. Half a million German soldiers were sick with the flu at the time that they were trying to mount a major counteroffensive before the Americans arrived. And they were not able to do that because too many men were sick with the flu. So oh, wow. this is a story of how the flu had an impact, perhaps not on the ultimate outcome of, of the war, but certainly on the progress of the war in the spring of 1918. Curiously, Downton Abbey is about the only piece of popular, let's call it fiction or drama, that has dealt with the Spanish flu. It's really absent from American literature, poetry, drama, film. There's one really brilliant short story by Catherine Ann Porter called Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Catherine Ann Porter was a reporter in Denver when she got the flu herself, uh, barely survived it, and wrote what is the kind of the quintessential short story. It's a, actually a long short story about the Spanish flu. But other than that, Nobody really wrote or spoke about the impact of this thing that had people described bodies stacked like cordwood all over the country, whether they were army bases or cities, hospitals in Philadelphia, bodies stacked like cordwood. There were scenes from this, that, that this era that to me evoke, you know, the walking dead. That's how grim and gruesome it was. Bodies laying in the street, people falling dead on a streetcar with this virulent influenza that killed suddenly and killed violently, but then kind of disappeared and disappears from the historical record and from popular memory. 
What do you see as the uh, lessons that we should learn? Uh, very few people were able to help anyone negotiate their way through this pandemic. No, but that's certainly the reason I write and talk and think about history and certainly talk to teachers about it. What do we learn from this? What is the connection between 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 500 years ago and our lives today? Seems to me in the case of the Spanish flu, there are some very, very specific real lessons that we can learn uh, both as a society and specifically as military and political leaders. Number one is that science was ignored in many cases uh, as the Spanish flu was being fought, uh, fought to great detriment to the people. The best example of that I can give is in 1918, in September, the flu was already raging on a lot of the army bases, especially some near Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was going to mount a big parade, which they did in those days, to sell war bonds. They were called liberty loans. The health inspector or the health department in Philadelphia knew that putting crowds of people into the streets of Philadelphia was a bad idea with this flu making the rounds. But they were so driven to fill their quotas of selling liberty loans that they decided to go ahead. So on September 28th, 200,000 people are on the streets of Philadelphia. John Philip Sousa is going to give a concert that night. Within three days, every hospital bed in Philadelphia was filled. The political leadership, the medical leadership ignored the warnings of scientists and medical people not to have this parade, but they went ahead. So political considerations outweighed serious and sound medical concerns. The same thing happened when the troops were really affected by this and the army bases were deluged by flu. But Pershing, the general who was in command in Europe, wanted more troops. They were this was the last push in September and October of 1918. He wanted more troops. There were already a million American men in Europe. He wanted more. Doctors said, don't, we need to quarantine these camps. We can't send people. But they put tens of thousands of men on these ships. Many of them did not even survive the voyage, brought them over to Europe, and the flu continued. Pershing himself had the flu and survived it. But, um, the, the losses, in the military in 1918 are rather extraordinary. Rough numbers are about 100,000 uh, American soldiers died during World War One. Maybe as many as 40 or 50,000 of them died from the flu and related comp complications. So when I say more deadly than war, it's not exaggeration. So that's one important thing. The other really important and interesting aspect of this period, I think, was the role that propaganda played in both stirring up American war fever and also in talking about the flu. Once America decided to get involved in the war in 1917, the propaganda machine that was created to get Americans to buy those war bonds I mentioned, support the military effort, enlist, became really powerful. and. Looking at the posters, and you've probably seen them from World War One, is extraordinary. First of all, the way they presented the Germans as the Huns, as they were barbarians. They were bayoneting Belgian children on the tips of their rifle. 
So propaganda was really powerful. And then the propaganda comes in because people didn't understand what the Spanish flu was. They didn't think of it as the flu at first. They were afraid that it was something that maybe the Germans had done, that the Kaiser had had his U-boats spread germs in America or that they had put germs in movie theaters. So it's really interesting to see how propaganda and fear factored into this epidemic. And that's another important lesson. Look, we've a hundred years ago, we didn't know what a virus was. We, there was nothing that you could do about the flu, basically, other than bed rest and tender loving care. We have better tools now. We have better international cooperation. But those guardrails that have been built in society, things like the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, have gone a long way to preventing a pandemic on this scale from happening again. But yes, it could. And when we weaken those guardrails, that's probably the most important lesson here. When we weaken those guardrails and when we deny science, as is being done at the highest levels of government right now in this country and elsewhere, we run extreme risk of, of damaging ourselves and damaging our nation. It seems like there's some real important social studies issues there, right? The idea of propaganda and manufactured consent, which Walter Lippmann wrote about in, in 1922, shortly after the Great War. Uh, and then these issues of pandemics and health safety and things, which you can see today, vaccinate your children, everyone. And I'm just throwing that in there real quick. <laughs> and some of these other health issues and how, how the CDC has been right. Some funding has been lost or, or stripped away in recent years. And so those seem like really important issues that we often don't get to in social studies classes. And a lot of students may have an interest in, I think about our students who decide to go into medicine and their civic roles of how they can advocate through their profession as citizens also could be really important in raising public awareness, in challenging propaganda and ensuring proper funding to address potential pandemics and things like that. And so it seems like the type of stuff we should be addressing in our social studies classes. I think it's critical and very dangerous to ignore what we know as science. And one of the roles I think that the social studies teacher has is to bring in that aspect. To me, one of the great problems in school in general is that we tend to have this, you know, math at eight o'clock, English at nine o'clock, history at uh, three o'clock, and they never meet. I've always been interested and tried to do this in the Don't Know Much About series in kind of bringing those things together, throwing all the shoes out on the floor and mixing them up and trying on different pairs and, and mixing together English literature and history and mixing uh, history and science that's a whole approach, a holistic approach, I hate to use that word, that I think is lacking. And it it was interesting to me to write this book because it was so much more science-oriented than some of my other books have been, right. to look at um, the connection between science and history in a way that I think school often doesn't. So, Kenneth, we'd also like to talk about another book you read, which actually we had a book club for with our for our SS Chat book club, and we thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And it was called In the Shadow of Liberty, The Hidden History of Slavery, Four Presidents, and Five Black Lives. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that project and what drew you to it? Well, when I wrote Don't Know Much About History 30 years ago, and the books, those books are a series of questions and answers about American history, um, some very straightforward questions, some a little bit offbeat and quirky. One of the questions that troubled me the most was the question of how these men who believe in these ideas that all men are created equal and we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these men who sacrificed and fought and took great risks for those ideas, how were those men able to go back to plantations utterly dependent upon enslaved labor? That question to me was the great contradiction in American history, that a nation conceived in liberty was also born in chains. And I spent a great deal of the last 30 years trying to answer that question in a satisfactory way, but I had really made the mistake in a way of of doing it by looking at what those men had said, done, written, rather than looking at it from the other side. So with In the Shadow of Liberty, I wanted to flip the script in a sense and write about this subject, which is one of the most important issues in American history. Write about it from a perspective of those people who were enslaved. And I wanted to do it to put a human face on this institution. I hate that word, but that's what it's called. This institution that uh, has been reduced too often to academic terms like abolition and, and manumission and proclamations and amendments. And put a human face on slavery. In the way, in a sense, that Harriet Beecher Stowe did by writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I thought that the best way to do that was to focus on five people who were actually the property of some of our greatest presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Andrew Jackson. Partly I did that because those people's records and lives are much more recorded and documented than many enslaved people's lives are. So it was, it was, first of all, easier to research that aspect of, of these lives. But also I wanted to bring in the perspective of what slavery meant to these men as, as people, but also as politicians. And that's where the understanding of how important slavery was in the building of the American Republic comes into the conversation. So I thought this this was an incredibly important subject that's misunderstood still by too many people in this country, that the racial issues dividing the country harken back to this centuries-old issue of racial slavery, and that one way to start the conversation was to put a human face on it by talking about people who were owned by the great, some of the greatest presidents that we build statues to. I bought a bunch of copies for my students, and then my department had also bought a bunch of copies. And we read parts of it, a couple chapters last year. And my students really loved it. They loved the way that it was written. They loved having names in hearing about their stories. And so it like really brought these enslaved people to life. And they felt like they had a much more nuanced understanding of what slavery was. So I feel like the audience because the audience wasn't just, the audience was for more like students, correct? 
That's correct. Uh, that was a book, the first book I have written in my career of narrative nonfiction aimed specifically at young adults, at a young adult audience. Um, having said that, I have to say completely honestly that I don't believe that I write differently for young adults than I do for adults. Um, the book is obviously shorter than a, an adult book might be. It's more heavily illustrated than any of the books I've ever written was. And um, obviously, you know, may, maybe some of the language is more accessible. I'm not going to say simplified. It's more accessible. But I've always tried to write in a conversational, conversational and accessible style, whether I'm writing for adults or young adults. And the dirty secret to me of, of young adult nonfiction is that many adults like it and read it, some not even knowing that it's actually young adult fiction, uh, nonfiction, but it's a very, very digestible way to get some basic history. And there are some wonderful, wonderful historians writing directly for that audience today. I think it's, you know, this is kind of a nice golden era of, of serious nonfiction being written for young adults. And it just doesn't get as much attention as the, the sexy novelists get. We recently had on Erica Armstrong Dunbar on our podcast too, and she wrote similarly a full book just about one of the women people in, in your book, which is Own a Judge. And now I have to go back and read your book because after reading hers, they've all mixed up in my, in my mind, the, the different things you wrote. <laughs> but it, it, when I brought that, her story to my students as a way to talk about slavery, it did help them understand it in a really complex way because her story addresses so many of the complexities of slavery, particularly because she moved with the Washingtons from one very different space to another. Was there anything really surprising that you learned in your research while doing that book that you just wouldn't have expected? I think the big surprises for me were not so much learning something extraordinary that I had never learned before, but the sense that I got of how important these people were to these presidents in a personal way. And Jefferson refers to enslaved African Americans as his family. And obviously, in his case, there were members of, of that group that were his family. We now <laughs> know and recognize that. And that's certainly, you know, without making it sound like it's all sexual intimacy, but the intimacy between these people is extraordinary. You know, I write about Paul Jennings, for instance, who was taken to the White House when he was 10 years old as an enslaved valet to the Madisons, James and Dolly Madison. And he was in the White House for every day of the next eight years, including the day that the British come and burn it to the ground. And then he went on struggling after the death of Madison, he is in Madison's room, James Madison's room, when Madison dies. He describes Madison's last breath, essentially. And so the, the extra, that's a sort of intimacy that I think is surprising. We tend to think of enslaved people as out in the fields and doing the work, but these people lived with these presidents and their families 24-7. And the, de the, the degree to which they were involved in their lives, uh, it's not so much surprising, but that's the, the one thing I came away with as, as being so important. 
so that a man like Alfred Jackson, and this is the, the, the complications of it, he is emancipated, he lives through the Civil War, and chooses to remain at the Hermitage. It's the only place he's ever known. And he lives there from the end of the Civil War until 1901. And that's, to me, also an amazing thing, not so surprising, but amazing, that a man who was enslaved by the seventh president, who had fought himself in the revolution as a, as a, as a child, lived into the 20th century. And so I always tell kids when I'm talking to them about this book that we have photographs of men like Isaac Jefferson or William, not William Lee, Isaac Jefferson, uh, Alfred Jackson, and Paul Jennings, photographs of men who were owned by some of the first presidents. That's how close we are to this story. This is not ancient history. This is not dead guys from a thousand years ago. This is something that is very close to us. And certainly it's close to us in terms of its importance, even today in American society and in our history. So, Kenneth, what you, you give a lot of talks to teachers and you spend a lot of time talking to teachers and talking also just with the public about history. I know you've been featured on, you know, major newscast, national newscasts to talk about history and what it means. So what lessons do you have for just your work in sharing, you know, why history is important? That is such an important question, Dan, and I'm sorry we don't have, you know, a few hours to talk about that. But simply, you know, we are living in this extraordinary moment in not only American history, but world history. Look, I am of the generation, I was born 10 years, basically 10 years after Pearl Harbor Day. My father was in World War II. We just had the, the, saw the funeral of George H.W. Bush the last president who served in World War II. That was the event that shaped my childhood and growing up years. And certainly I grew up during the period of history when we were doing the air raid drills in our schools and going down into the basement and what was going to happen if the Soviet Union launched missiles at us. That's the, the era in which I grew up. And then comes the end of communism, the end of the Cold War, and we have this extraordinary moment at the tail end of the 20th century when the great conflict that had driven history during most of the 20th century basically disappears overnight without a shot being fired. And I think an awful lot of people thought we were entering what George H.W. Bush himself called a new world order. Since then, of course, and in the past few years in particular, we've seen a real reversal of those tremendous gains that democracy had around the world, where the Soviet Union crumbled, all of the former Eastern Bloc European nations became young democracies, some of them joined the European Union, and we thought, well, this is the, the opening of a new era in world history where democracy is flourishing, and we thought that it would then flourish in the Middle East with this moment called the Arab Spring. And suddenly, almost as suddenly as that, that communism had ended, this period of optimistic hopefulness about democracy spreading also came to an end, as we've seen the rise of 
authoritarian governments around the world in many different countries in response to different situations. So I think it is a fraught moment for democracy. It's a fraught moment when we have to look back at history going back. I'm reading right now about the Roman Republic, which was around for a long, long time and then suddenly fell and was replaced by an autocracy, a dictator. And the Roman people were happy with that. We saw the moment when Adolf Hitler was didn't sweep into Germany with an army, but was elected and used a crisis then to gain dictatorial powers and kill democracy in Germany. So this is a, a, a moment that I'm looking around the world right now and looking at this this country, our country, in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime in terms of the, the rise of authoritarianism, the threats to democracy, and really the, the end of an era and serious dark questions about where this era is heading. And I have to add on top of that, we also have this extraordinary moment. We're talking about, about science and ignoring science before. We're at this extraordinary moment where we're really confronting an existential crisis about climate change. And it's not being taken seriously, certainly by the current administration. So for all of my life, I've been a very optimistic person and used history to kind of see how this progression was moving forward. But it seems to have come to a very sudden halt. And we've taken some very, very serious steps backward. And as a historian and as a citizen, I, I guess I'm more worried than I ever have been. And that's all the more reason to really look at history and see what we can learn from it. The Empire Strikes Back. I don't, I apologize for that comment. <laughs> we really appreciate your dedication to addressing these issues. And I, I've talked recently about how I find a lot of hope in some of these young people who are at the Capitol every day fighting for, you know, climate change legislation so that they can live a, a prosperous life. And, and so I find hope in them and, and some young legislators that are now fighting for green new deals and, and things like that, which seems like the, the types of drastic actions we need to address the problems we have. I would agree with you completely, and I would say to temper my pessimism with some optimism, uh, I think to, uh, a couple of the most encouraging things I've seen, first of all, the incredible activism of the students, particularly the Parkland students, who suffered this extraordinary tragedy and have turned it into uh, a true mission, a crusade to to change gun laws in this country. And then the, you know, the extraordinary outpouring during the most recent midterm elections, the, re the recent midterm elections, that showed, I think, that people have sat up and taken notice and the complacency that I think allowed a lot of the creep of authoritarianism, both around the world and in this country, is getting some pushback now. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I think that that's to put a bow on this, I suppose, that's where the civics, social studies, history teacher has the most important job to do right now, which is to fire up young people's involvement, enthusiasm, and commitment to being involved in the process. Because look, it's going to be their world. My world, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, however many more years it is, this is the future is theirs. 
and they have to really start being invested in it. And so that's why I was tremendously encouraged to see so many young people getting involved in the recent election and also in the the post-Parkland moment, as well as a great many teachers getting very active in places like West Virginia and Kansas and saying, no, teachers are important and you have to give us some respect. So I'm on the barricades with them. There you go. If you're a social studies teacher, you know, I always say prepare a lesson that's going to help our, our students address the challenges our world faces. If the lesson's not doing that at all, then, you know, so. Well, thank you, Kenneth Davis, so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? The best place to find me is don'tknowmuch.com. That's my website where you can find out about all of my books for both for adults and young adults, but I think they're all for everybody. And I usually am posting there about what's going on in the news and uh, recent events, and you can find all the articles I've written, uh, as well as my Skype offer to Skype mm. in classrooms. So, and, and also, obviously, you can find me on Twitter, at Kenneth C. Davis. And very often on Monday nights, uh, especially once I'm finished with my school, because I am a student, uh, I'll be <laughs> back. I'll be back at SS Chat on Monday night, joining you more regularly. Well, we look forward to that, and we will definitely make sure to continue those those discussions online. And you're an active tweeter, and if you're not following Kenneth C. Davis, what on earth are you doing? True, true. All right. We are all about sharing the learning at the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. Or we're also on the Facebook. And, of course, if you haven't already, and why haven't you, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you want us to be. And give us a five-star review. Just give it to us. Just go on Apple Podcasts and just give it to us. What are you doing right now? Yeah. Um, that helps people find this podcast and we appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.